0: I've got three more weeks to talk to you, and I treasure those three weeks. Uh, Tia's going to talk to you next week uh, about something that God's put on her heart, but I've got three more Sundays to hammer something into you, and I love this season um, because this is a season in which we're reminding ourselves of something that is a cornerstone of our faith, which is that God became flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that Emmanuel, God is with us, God came to be with us, and so what we call this season, you might call it the Christmas season, what we often call this season is the Advent season, Uh, and some of you might have grown up in the church setting, some of you might not have, some of you might have grown up in in, in more of a liturgical setting, a little bit more let's say, quiet than what you experienced this morning. Um, and you might have celebrated Advent and just thought, well, we don't do that here. Uh, we don't light the candles like, like they did at my old church or whatever. Well, the truth is, is that we all celebrate this differently. And here's what I believe. I believe that feasts are not only scriptural, but they're, they're God-ordained. All throughout the Bible, when He wants us to remember something, He wants us to experience something... He he gives us a feast. He gives us something to celebrate. Now, in the Old Covenant, we have those feasts. We, We have the Feast of Passover. We have the Feast of Booths. We have all these different feasts that were not only looking back to what God had done, but they were looking forward to a fulfillment in Christ, which is powerful. Because everything that God does, there's a reminder of what He's already done and an expectation of what He's yet to do. And so what we don't have in the New Testament is we don't have a lot of the, uh, a lot of the scripture in the New Testament is, is teaching, it's foundation. We don't have a lot of prescribed, you've got to celebrate this way. That's, that's not what they did. And yet we have church history where we find out that the church celebrated in different ways. They celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. They celebrated the Passover differently. Now that the Passover is not just about escaping from Egypt, the Passover is about Jesus coming and not only dying for us but rising again we find that they celebrated in in, in sort of a protest against the roman uh, uh feast of saturnalia the church did not participate in that pagan activity but instead said we're doing something different we're going to celebrate the victory of Jesus over darkness. So we're going to pick the darkest day of the year when it goes start, when, the, when the days stop getting shorter and they just turn and start getting longer. And we're going to celebrate light defeating darkness as Jesus, the light of the world, came to the earth. So here's the deal. As a Christian in 2023, there is no scripture that tells you you have to celebrate Christmas. You don't have to. You don't have to put decorations up. You don't have to give gifts. There's nothing in the Bible that tells you you have to do that. And certainly as your pastor, I'd say follow your conscience. I would tell you this. I believe it's good for our souls to remember the things that God has done for us, to remember what Jesus has done, and to rebel against the culture's pressure to see this as a commercial thing. Because it's not. And I, we are family. We give gifts. You might not. We give gifts to celebrate Jesus. But I, I just have to always keep training my soul. I am not going to buy in to the commercial world that tells me spend, 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 sale, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. I'm going to slow down and say, Lord, what do you want me to see in this time? What do you want me to see in this season? We are different. We're different people, guys. We don't fit, we're not conformed to the world. We are to be transformed to the image of the Son. And so one of the reasons that we celebrate Advent, what does the word Advent mean? means the coming, the arrival, right? So an Advent season is a season where we recognize the Advent of Jesus, the Advent of the Messiah, the Advent of God in the flesh, which is a pretty big deal, huh? A lot bigger than Groundhog Day. A lot bigger than New Year. It's a lot bigger than, than any other holiday other than resurrection, any other holiday of the year, including your birthday. Right? Now, Jesus wasn't born in December 25th. We're not saying that he was, but this is a really good time for us to remember. And so one of the things we've got to do is we say, well, how does a Christian Think about this holiday. How does a Christian approach this? Like I said, different Christians approach it differently. But what we're going to do is we're going to say, Lord, we want to slow down. We want to take a step back, and we want to see what you want us to see. If the season of Advent is, the, is talking about the arrival, I want you to consider that the story of the Bible, and it's I don't say story like it's a made-up tale. The history of the Bible, the history of humanity is not a bunch of little stories that teach us some lessons. It is one constant narrative, one constant thread of God's faithfulness to humanity. And from the very beginning to the very end, it's all one story that God is writing in history. And so when we approach Advent, we've got to remember there are thousands of years of expectation. Thousands of years of anticipation for a Messiah. And why is that relevant to you today? Well, first of all, it sure helps you understand when you're reading the Gospels and you read how some of the people are basically just bursting with expectation. And some people, when the Messiah is right in front of them, are so calloused and hardened that they don't see Him. We could sure learn a lot about the fact that they've been waiting for thousands of years And when people wait for a long time, they either grow in the faith like Abraham did or they give up. And why that's relevant for you today is not only do you have to, do all of us have to stand in faith, whether short or long, we've got to stand in faith, trusting God, expecting things. But we're also in the middle here. We're looking back to to the coming of Jesus, but we're also looking ahead to his return. So we're in a season of Advent as well. We're in a season where we're expecting, we're waiting. And the Bible tells us that, we sh- that God wants us to be a church, to be a people that eagerly await the Lord's return. Yes. That when you are expecting Jesus is coming back, you live differently. You hope differently. You rejoice differently. You, 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 you gather differently. There is a difference when you believe Jesus is coming back. There's a difference in how you see the world. There's a difference in how you see the news. There's a difference in how you pray. There's a difference in how we love. There's a difference in how we, we live knowing that this is not the end of it all. So this is Advent. So what we're going to do over the next three weeks, well, four weeks, but three services I'm preaching, is what we're doing today is we're going to talk about the thousands of years of expectation for a Savior, for a Messiah. And then the second week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the people that heard the word, that that, that he's here, he's coming, he is to be born. And how did they react to that? And then the third week, we're going to talk about Jesus coming again. We're going to talk about what we're expecting, we're looking forward. So we've got three stages of history, before Jesus, waiting for him, when he has arrived, he's here, and the third, we're awaiting his second coming. We're looking back and we're looking forward at the same time. So I want you to turn to First Peter with me, and I want you to see it in First Peter chapter one, what he writes about the Old Testament, what he writes about the, the law and the prophets, and, and what you have inherited now as a believer. We're going to go to First Peter 1:10. He's just told you that that when you encounter trials and when you encounter persecution, it can't damage your faith because your faith is more valuable than gold. And when it's tested by fire, it comes out solid. He says that's because of the salvation that we've been granted. It's because of the salvation of our souls that we've experienced and we're yet to experience. But he says this in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ. Now, I want you to hear, when Peter writes the word Christ, it's it's the word Messiah. Okay? You know that, right? Christ is just from the Greek word Christos, which is just a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And even the way I pronounce Messiah right now is not the Hebrew way to pronounce Messiah. But here's what it is. He says, they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ or the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, in these things which they have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. So he's saying what we're living in right now is what thousands of years of prophets have been looking for. I mean, that's privilege. We, we, what a privilege to be able to walk in that, to live in that, to experience that. And he's saying they, when they would prophesy about the Messiah, they'd start doing their research because realize... We, we, we assume that a prophet knows everything. They don't. They know what's been revealed. Yeah. What God gave them to say, they said. And then they're, they're like everybody else. They're like, what in the world does that mean? The Bible says we, right now in this present age, we see through a glass dimly. We see through a mirror dimly. We, we, we don't see things perfectly clear yet because we're on this side of eternity. And so when the prophets would prophesy, can you imagine they, this, the spirit of Christ is speaking through them? And then they're going, this sounds amazing. When is this going to happen? And then, when did this start? We look in Genesis chapter three and, and what, Genesis chapter three verse 15. God says to, to Eve and she's, he's talking to Adam and Eve about the consequences of what they've done, the consequences of their disobedience and them allowing sin into the world. I mean, this is minutes. After, I have assumed minutes. We don't know how much time passed, but this is the first conversation they're having with God after they've sinned. The first one, the very first thing God says to Adam and Eve, he says, this is what's going to happen based on what you've done. But then he says in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, who's he talking to right here? He's not talking to Eve. Now he's talking to the serpent. We're not talking about a literal snake. Now, Satan appeared as a literal snake, but you know, you can go to the zoo right now and look at the reptiles and that's not just a bunch of demons crawling around. Those are just God's creatures, right? If you have a snake at home, you're not hosting a demonic force. That's a nice critter and we like snakes, all right? We like the good kind. But the serpent in the garden is not just any ordinary creature. This is Satan. And so God speaks to Satan and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Thank God, right? Wouldn't it be worse if he said, I'll make you friends with women? That would be a problem. He said, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to get too deep in anatomy here, but seed doesn't come from a woman. Seed comes from a man, yeah? Or uh, let's just go to plants or animals, right? There's an egg and there's a seed. Which one comes from which? So why does he say seed? Well, of course, he's talking about descendant, but I think it's deeper than that because you know that Jesus is the only human being ever born in history without an earthly father, and so he, he was born of a virgin, and the Holy Spirit put that child in in that woman. So when it says the seed of a woman, that's something you might not have said normally. But there's, he's not saying to Adam, your seed, even though Jesus is the descendant of Adam. He's talking to Eve. He says, or he's talking to the serpent about Eve. He says, and I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Another translation says he will crush your head. And that's the reality of what Jesus did, right? Jesus' his heel was bruised, right? He was, he was tortured. He was, he was beaten. He was cruelly executed. And yet he crushed the head of the enemy. And the Bible says the God, the God himself, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. This is a reality. So the first conversation God has with people after they've sinned is this is not the end of the story. Yeah. There's a Redeemer coming. Hundreds of years later, like seven centuries maybe approximately, Abraham comes along and God says, through your descendants, I'm not just going to bless your descendants. I'm going to bless all the nations. And he gives a promise that through this promised child, he tells a a, a man and a woman who've never been able to have kids, through your kids, through your descendants, there is going to come a descendant that's going to bless the world. When we get to Moses, he says to Moses, through Moses to the people of Israel, I will raise up a prophet like you amongst your own people, and you're going to listen to him. Yeah. When Balaam tried to prophesy evil over Moses and, and the Israelites, instead, he sees a picture of the Messiah. Yeah. In fact, let me read it to you real quick. It's in, it's in uh, Numbers, or sorry, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Balaam, who is trying to say bad things over God's people, he's trying to curse them, keeps being forced to bless them. And can you imagine this mercenary, sellout, just bad intention, bad hearted prophet. That we would say, no way do you ever get to speak in our church. I don't care what the donkey said. We're not listening to you. This is a dude who who is willing to take a bribe to curse God's people. But at least he has enough integrity and sense of self-preservation to know I can't say what God didn't say. So he keeps getting himself in a position where he goes, let me try over here. Let me try to prophesy from a hill. Uh, Maybe if we offer some animals or something. And no matter what he does, he keeps blessing the people of Israel. And God uses this guy who later on becomes, a, he's a villain in the story. The next time he's mentioned, he's, he's mentioned as, thank God we killed that guy. <laughs> he's like on the enemy's uh, killed and missing in action uh, casualty list. We find him in the New Testament, they're like, don't enter into the sin of Balaam. So he's not a good character. He's not like, he's not like a Bible hero. But God still used him to prophesy about the Messiah that would come thousands of years later. And he says this in Genesis, oh, sorry, Deuteronomy 18:15. He says, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like, oh sorry, I'm reading um, what Moses said. Skip on skip I'll, I'll read this from Moses, and then we'll, we'll skip to what Balaam says. He says, "The Lord your God will raise up. This is what God said to Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from among you, from your countrymen." And you shall listen to him. Now, when you heard that, you might not think that's talking about the Messiah. But in the book of Acts, the apostle said that was talking about Jesus. Whether you realize it or not, that prophet he's talking about wasn't Joshua. That prophet he's talking about wasn't wasn't somebody like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah or Elisha. That's talking about Jesus. And he says, let's skip to the book of Numbers here. He's going to say to Balaam, through Balaam, in Numbers chapter 24. I just want to take you through some of these prophecies. We're going to read all of them. But I want you to see that there's been a, a narrative. There's been something constant. God's been telling his people for a long time that he was coming. In Numbers 24. Verse 16, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come from Jacob. Now, Jacob is the other name for Israel. A star. What is a star? A star is a self-contained source of light. And all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets referred to the coming of the Messiah as a light that would dawn. The light is not an idea. The light is not just simply a, a new truth or a new way. The light is a person. That person is Jesus Christ. He said, a star shall come from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab and shall tear down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant of the city. It may very well be that this verse itself was something that Daniel carried with him to Babylon. And when he was made chief of the Magi, taught them these prophecies. And it could very well be, now I'm not telling you this is for sure, you take this and judge it for yourself, but it could very well be that the Magi, hundreds of years later, kept these prophecies and were looking for a star. And God led them to the manger, not to the manger, but to a house where young Jesus was staying. This is, this is, this is, Telling us that this is more than just something that happened all of a sudden. Out of nowhere, Jesus came. It wasn't out of nowhere. And so how do people, like, like, you go all the way from there and you go to the Psalms. God says to David, he talks about the Messiah. He talks about him being a king. In fact, let me read this to you in in, in Psalms uh, chapter 110. I'm going to read it quick because we want to get through this. But Psalm 110. He speaks of a king. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. And the apostle said in the book of Acts, well, who are they talking about? He said, they weren't talking about David because David says, my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord. And so the apostle said on the day of Pentecost, he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Listen to that. So he tells us, that there's somebody coming that, that is going to be the Lord. There's somebody coming that's going to be a king. And there's some, this king is not just going to be a king, he's going to be a king and a priest, which is something that David didn't experience because David was in, was, was in the tribe of Judah, David was a king, but the tribe of Levi was the tribe where the priests came from. Those two didn't mix, they kept in their own corners. But Melchizedek was the exception because he was the king of Salem. He was the king of Jerusalem. And he came and Abraham gave a tithe to him. And the Bible says that Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, it quotes the scripture. And says that Jesus was who David was talking about. The the king and the prophet and the priest all put into one in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so now David has said it. Then we skip ahead. I'm skipping a lot of prophecies. I'm just giving you some big ones. We skip ahead and Isaiah says, unto you a child will be born. Unto you a son is given. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. He talks about a a light dawning in a dark place. And all throughout Isaiah, he gives that in Isaiah 9. But if you read Isaiah 49, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, you see the story of the Messiah. Now here's the deal, guys. This is what we're remembering in this season. This is what we're slowing down to remember. We are slowing down and disconnecting from what the world says this is all about. And we are entering to a worshipful approach where we say, let's remember, let's let's live in in the moment, in the tension of that saying, we have a promise and yet we're still waiting. Because we as the people of God cannot let go of the hope that he's coming again. And so when we go back and we remember what the Israelites must have felt like. How did they hang on for centuries? How did they wait for thousands of years for a redeemer to come? By the time that Jesus came, you've got people that know all the scripture on this. They know all the facts and yet they're not looking for Jesus at all. The the people in Jerusalem, when the wise men came, when the Magi came to Jerusalem, uh, they said, where's the king going to be born? The scholars said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Not one of them cared to check it out. They knew that's where he's going to be born, but they honestly just don't expect it. When Jesus came and... And he revealed himself, and and he's got his own disciples recognizing you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's got the most educated religious leaders who know everything about the Messiah. Know where he's going to be born, know what he's going to do, know the prophecies about him. And yet, when he's right there, they don't recognize him, they don't see him. Because they're not waiting in faith. Their waiting is, is a hopeless waiting. I don't know about you, but I think a lot of Christians, including myself at times, have said we're waiting on God's promise. We believe God's promise, but you disconnected from it a long time ago. It's pretty quiet, and that's okay. It's not something you want to amen. You want to say, well, not me, not now, not ever. We have to learn how to be people of faith that wait and hope, that have expectation. The season of Advent is a season of building towards expectation. When I say Advent, what do you think about? Like most, just, just randomly. When I say the word Advent, what, what comes to your head? Candles, calendars, right? Advent calendars, yeah? Right. You know, I was looking for an Advent calendar for my family. It was almost impossible to find one that had anything to do with Jesus. M&M and uh, Advent calendar. Super Mario Advent calendar. You know, I find in Advent calendars that, you know, I look at, I see one. It's like solve 20, it's a mystery that you solve over 24 days. And Tia and I said the same thing. Oh, cool. So it tells you about Jesus? Like, it, it, you, as you solve it, you learn about the story? No, nothing to do with Jesus. The world took this idea of Advent and said, countdowns. Everybody loves countdowns, right? Let's put chocolate in there. Me and my son last year, we had a cheese advent calendar, different cheese every day. But you know what we did? Before you judge me, listen to what we did. <laughs> Sitting there going, wow, yeah, cheeses, <laughs> right? They were the cheeses of Nazareth, yeah. No, they, you know, we're, we're, as we're going through day by day, we're, Moses, we're not going to eat this cheese until we read this passage. Now let's talk about it. And we went through the prophecies, and we went through the stories of Jesus' birth, and we went through the, 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 the different scriptures to talk about what that meant to us, that God was coming in the flesh. And so every day, we trained our souls to live in that moment of anticipation. So when you were a kid, if you didn't know Jesus, your anticipation was, I can't wait until Christmas. Then I get to see what that present is under the tree. But as a believer... Even if you, you do gifts, that's great. But as a believer, your anticipation is not about the gifts. You're living in the anticipation of uh, what the Israelites must have felt, what the people of God must have felt. If you hear songs like, oh, come, oh, come, you will, it's in a minor key. It's a mournful song until you get to the chorus. Rejoice. We hit a major key when we hit rejoice. We had a major chord because that that minor key was, it, to their culture, a key which which spoke that the work was not done. It was not finished, and so we can't fully celebrate because the work's not done. And so those minor songs are songs of of waiting, of of tension. And yet here we come when when when. Jesus is born and birth, you know, his birth comes and Emmanuel is with us. Then we burst into major keys like joy to the world, the Lord has come, right? We have this major key celebration because we're not in tension anymore. What we've been waiting for has arrived. But believers have to know how to live in that tension of we have received and yet we are waiting to receive something. I've been adopted and yet the scripture says I have not received the fullness of my adoption until Jesus comes back and I get that new body. I have been resurrected but there is a resurrection to come. I live in the kingdom now but there is a kingdom coming. That that is what's happened but what is yet to come. And that's important. It's important in the short term, it's important in the long term, because you, the Bible tells us very clearly, you live different when you're waiting in expectation. People receive different when they've been expecting. When you come to a church expecting God to do something, you receive in a different way. There is a hopeful waiting, and there's a hopeless waiting. What is hope, hopeless waiting will fade. Your hope fades over time. When you're waiting on something, you've got no hope. What what does the Bible say? We have a living hope which anchors us. It's an anchor for our soul, the Bible says. So in your emotions, you're, you're tired of waiting. You're frustrated. That living hope anchors my soul to something. What does it anchor to? It says to the very throne of God. You're an anchored hope to something alive, to something real. That's going to keep you from despairing. It's going to keep you from being anxious about it. Because hopeless waiting leads to anxiety, to depression, to to a feeling of giving up, to sluggishness. Right? When you're waiting for something that you have no solid hope, you start saying things like, I guess it's not happening. And do you know, before Jesus came, people said, I'm tired of hearing about the Messiah because I've been hearing about the Messiah all my life. Where is he? I give up. And when you give up, when the answer you've been waiting for for all those years stands right in front of you, you don't recognize it. Like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the religious scribes and scholars looking at Jesus going, can't possibly be the one because their heart was so hard. And yet men like Simeon, women like Anna, shepherds in the field, believed this is who we've been waiting for. Mary, Zechariah, Elizabeth, men and women of God that didn't give up waiting, but waited in faith. A hopeless waiting will yield all those things, but a hopeful waiting, a waiting that's tied to a living hope, doesn't lead to anxiety. What does it lead to? Anticipation. I mean, let's talk about it for a minute. When your kids, if you do celebrate by giving gifts, when your kids see that gift under the tree, that anticipation builds over time because they know they're going to get that. They know that that day is coming. They know that's a reality. So they get more excited the more they wait. As a believer, how much more the promises of God. When we're waiting in faith, we're not despairing, we're anticipating, we're getting more excited. The Bible says that Abraham hoped against hope, he believed. And it says without wavering in unbelief, he grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God. I've said this to you before, but let me say it again. When you're hoping with the world's kind of hope, the longer you wait, the less you're hopeful. But when you're hoping with heavenly hope, that hope against hope, the longer you wait, the more your faith grows. Hopeful waiting is a time of preparation. God's preparing you for what's to come. Why did God, why did God tell them thousands of years, hundreds of years before Jesus? Why did God tell them, I'm sending a redeemer? It didn't come in their lifetime. Hebrews 11 says, all these died in faith, not receiving the promise. Peter writes, these prophets realized they weren't serving themselves, they were serving us. What benefit did it give them? Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. So what do we find? When you see the promises of God from afar by faith, instead of saying, well, it's not happening in my lifetime and leading to despair, it leads to joy. Abraham rejoiced. It led to joy in his life. It led to hope. It led to him making different decisions. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, if he had Wanted to, he could have lived in the fancy house in the city. But instead, he chose to live in tents in the promised land because he was looking for a city whose builder is God. He was looking for something different. He was looking for the promise. And he said, having seen it from afar off, these people saw the promise from afar off, and they welcomed it. I mean, that's what Jesus is talking about. Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He rejoiced. And, and in, in a way, he even partook of something. Through, spiritually, he partook of something he didn't actually get to see with his own eyes. David, when he's writing about God's forgiveness, some of those things he's writing are, are new covenant truths. Can you imagine being David? Writing a psalm and thinking you're writing about your struggle and all of a sudden you're entering into the prophetic and you start speaking out and singing out what Jesus was going to go through on the cross. Can you imagine? These men and these women looked and said, what in the world? Who is this guy? When's he coming? Why would God tell people so far ahead of time? Because we're meant to live in expectation. We're meant to live in hope. We're meant to live in anticipation. We're meant to wait upon the Lord. We're meant to not wait like the world waits going, well, we'll see what happens. We're meant to wait like a dog waiting at the door for his master to come home. Ready, excited, living differently. That's what Advent is all about. You know, I, I, I find this season to be so rewarding when I intentionally train my soul, and you know, habits are good. Don't you know that? Disciplines are good. I know we have spontaneous things. We're charismatic people, so we like spontaneous things. Like the Lord just told me today to do this, and we, that's more spiritual than the Lord telling you a year ago to do something, right? You told me right now. Don't eat bacon. Eat turkey. All right. Praise the Lord. But you know, it's not, it's not unspiritual to plan something, Okay. The same Holy Spirit that's here with you now also is with you a week ahead of time and knows what's going to happen. And there are godly disciplines. You know, you are participating in one right now. You came to church on Sunday. As you wake up and just go, mm, Lord, where do you want me to go? Into the car, turn the ignition, turn the ignition. Take a left or take a take a left. No, you, you have entered into a godly discipline of I'm going to gather with the saints on the Lord's day. That's what you do. How many of you, and don't raise your hand, just, you know, think about it. How many of you get up in the morning, you open your Bible every morning, you read the Word of God. You pray. Now I'm sad that I didn't tell you to raise your hand because that would have been fun. (laughs) Or depressing, depending on the answer. Maybe that's what I was worried about. (laughs) I pray that you all would. Godly disciplines, godly rhythms, godly habits... Lead to fruit in your life. Lead to joy in your life. And it trains your soul because the world is trying to train your soul all the time you're bombarded with it you're bombarded with with advertisement you're bombarded with with media you're bombarded with 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 just people and you're taught this is what we do this is how we think and so you got to retrain yourself no this is not how I live I live different I think different I, I I walk different and one of the ways we do that is by these godly rhythms we disconnect from the rhythm of the world and we enter the rhythm of grace we enter we take Jesus's yoke upon us for his yoke is easy his burden his like we learn from him and so one of the ways we do that in this season because well, come on it, it is loud in this season right it is it is all over and and you know when Black Friday came along which what in the world we don't even have American Thanksgiving but the day after American Thanksgiving you better believe we're going to find what the sales are and you if you're not careful that becomes the biggest thing of the season I bought some things on Black Friday. It's not a sin. But I'm not going to let that be the center of my universe. I'm not going to let that steal my desire, my affection. So what do we do? You know, well, that's one of the things that I said with my family. We, we say, okay, we're going to go through these prophecies. We're going to go through these words about the Messiah. And every day, we're going we're gonna to enter into this anticipation. We're going to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit. And say, what must it have been like to wait for the Messiah? Because it relates to me because I'm also waiting for the king to return. And we train our souls. You know, what's brighter? The street light outside your window or a star in the sky? The star is so much brighter. I mean, not even close, right? A star is millions of times brighter than that dumb street light. And yet when you're standing under that street light, and you're standing under a bunch of them in the city, how easy is it to see the stars? It's difficult, isn't it? The glory of the stars is obscured by some cheap little street light because you're close to it, right? The closer you are to something, the bigger it seems. But it's not actually bigger, right? That's just the fact that you're standing near it. And so when you're in the world and you're just looking and you're just dominated by entertainment or you're dominated by you're 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 just just the ads all around you or the glitz of the God. You might start to think this is what this is about because you're standing close to it. When you compare what the world's offering you to the glory of God, they're not even close. You're comparing streetlights to stars, but sometimes you got to go to Elk Island National Park or you got to go to a ranch and some of our friends here that live in, live in the country and you got to go outside and you got to park your car, turn off your headlights and look up and go, oh, wow, that's what those look like. What you're experiencing is the glory of something that's much bigger. You know, the gravity. The, the law of gravity is a law that God put in place in the universe. He created the, the laws of nature. And so the law of gravity tells us that the greater an object's mass, the greater its gravitational force, which is why the moon rotates around the earth and not the other way around. But it also tells us that the further away you are from this object... The, the, the less that gravitational force is. So the, the further you get away, the less that gravitational force has on you. What you have to understand is that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than anything the world has the glory of Christ is so much bigger than anything the world has that it should be enough. It's got enough mass to it that it should draw you into its orbit and we're orbiting around Christ and we're orbiting around his kingdom. We're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. As the song said, the things of this world are growing strangely dim. But you know, with enough distance, you start to think that this little object over here is bigger. It's got your attention and it's bright. What you need to do, back away from that. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes and say, no, 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 this is worth waiting for. When the people of Israel, when the people of Judah specifically, were warned by Jeremiah, if you guys don't change your ways, invaders are coming. They're going to haul you out of your land. They're going to take you as slaves to another land. They said, doesn't feel like that. Don't believe it. And it happened. The Babylonians came, stole all the stuff from the temple, sacked the city, burned it to the ground, raised Jerusalem down to its foundations, took away the people and didn't even let them live in, in, in their homeland, took them back to Babylon, trained them in their schools, trained them in their ways. And the people of God said, they had some of their own prophets saying, Jeremiah had said, in 70 years, I'll bring you home. But the, the people of God had some prophets that weren't really accurate that kept saying to them, you know what? Don't settle down. Don't unpack your bags. It's only going to be a couple years we're out of here. Don't listen to their governors. Don't do what they say. We're going to be back home in no time in a flash. And Jeremiah comes along and says by the Spirit of God, those guys are lying to you. Don't listen to them. They're not saying what God said. And he says in Jeremiah 29, you're going to be here for a while, so unpack your bags. Settle down. Plant some gardens. Raise a family. Get to know your neighbors. Pray for the prosperity of your city, which was Babylon. Have you ever thought about praying for Babylon? My goodness. But it's where they lived. He says, I'll bless your city, so I'll bless you. He says, and in 70 years, I'll bring you home. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Right? You will seek me and you'll find me if you search, with me, for, search for me with all your heart. So here's the Israelites going, the people of Judah going, so are we supposed to get comfortable or are we supposed to not? And God says, settle down, but don't get too comfortable. Because in a generation, I'm going to bring you home. Seven years come and gone. Those 70 years come and go. And the people that were like, we're not settling in. We're not unpacking. We refuse to listen to the governors. We refuse to obey the laws. We refuse to do any of this. We don't want to get to know our neighbors because we're about to leave. Those people eventually become the same people that say, we kind of like it in Babylon now. We have Babylon stuff. We have a nice Babylonian house. Our kids are in Babylon, top Babylonian schools. We don't want to go home. Daniel's looking in his prophecies. He's looking in Jeremiah's prophecies, and he goes, it's 70 years, and we're still here. He goes down to the river and says, Lord, I'm going to seek you. He repents on behalf of his people. He seeks the Lord, and God says, all right, here's my, here's my plan. Not only did Daniel get the immediate plan, but he gets like the layout for what God's going to do for the rest of history. But do you see that that's what humans kind of (laughs) do? We're real good with fast food. We're real good with the immediate right now. Are you going to do something, Lord? If not, I'm unplugging. But the people of God said, even if we wait 70 years, we're going to look, put our eyes to Zion, and remember, God's going to bring us home. We're going to settle down. We're going to plant gardens. You know, and so that's the, that's the age we're living in now, friends. We live in Babylon. We live in a world that's fallen. We live in a world that's broken. And God's not telling you to disconnect from your world. God's telling you, get to know your neighbors. Get a job. Have some kids. Bless the city you're in. Bless the neighborhood you're in. Bless the RM you're in. But don't get so comfortable that you think this is it. Keep your eyes fixed on Zion because I'm coming back and I'm bringing you home. And you live different. You live sanctified that way. So today, what I want you to have in your heart is that there is a a waiting that's of God. There is a waiting that's holy. There is a waiting that's not hopeless. There's a waiting that builds anticipation. You know, in our church... Here at the Word Church, there's a reason we do the Christmas Eve service like we do it. And it's funny that a lot of you have said over the years, Christmas Eve service is one of your favorite services of all, of all the year. You know what I think that the reason behind that is? It's so different from everything else that's going on in the world. The world right now is loud. It's like, line up at Walmart. It's 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 all the glitz and the bang and all that stuff and the sparkle and I like decorations that glorify God. We put up evergreens to symbolize the victory of Christ over death because the evergreen, unlike other trees, does not lose lose its leaf. It does not it does not wither in the winter time. It stays green all the time, just like the life of Jesus stays constant. We put up poppies and 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 uh, um, poinsettias. Thank you. I totally forgot the name of that flower. We put up holly and poinsettias because we remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Other people might see other meaning in this, but that's what we remember. When it comes time to Christmas Eve, we we get quiet because it's a time of simple worship. And I think what people are looking for right now is can we just bring it back to what this is all about? And in your family, in your life, you get to choose what this is about. Don't say, well, this is what everybody, you know, my job, or this is what, you know, I, I, when I'm watching TV, or whatever. You get to, you get to decide how you're going to view this. You get to decide how you're going to celebrate the, the fact that, that God became flesh. You get to decide how your family's going to see this. The world can't tell you how you're going to live your life. And so I encourage you, no matter how you celebrate Christmas, or even whether you celebrate it this time of year or not, however... Enter into that worship of Advent, that expectation, that that anticipation. Put yourself in that place where you say, this is what it's like to believe God. This is what it's like to hold on to promise. This is what it's like not to let go. This is what it's like for the people of God to say, I have seen. It may not be now. It may be far off. It's not near, but it's far. But a star will rise out of Jacob. And this is the attitude we have as believers as we await the second coming, the second advent of Jesus Christ. What a great time. And so we're celebrating the season, a season of celebration. I mean, if thousands of years have led up to that one moment, I'd say it's worth celebrating. Right? I mean, that's why we feast. That's why we celebrate. You know, I tried to, I I did this with my family. I don't know what you do, but I went back to the old ways uh, through Christian history where You know, Christmas Day was like the first day of 12. You know, 12 days of Christmas was not a countdown leading to Christmas. Christmas Day was the first one, and then it went all the way to what they called Epiphany. And so we said, all right, let's just, Christmas Day is is a start of something. We're going to celebrate Jesus' coming for 12 days. Let's do that. And uh, we just found ways to do that. You get to find ways for yourself. We get to develop godly traditions and godly rhythms in our life that remind us what God has done, not only what he's done, but like like Passover, it looks back to what he's done, and it looks ahead. Like Pentecost, it would look back, but it looked ahead. And in the same sense, we look back that Jesus has come, but we look ahead, he's coming again.